Thank you for your patience with my voice last week and your prayers. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Micah chapter 3. You can find that on page 777 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. We've been studying through the minor prophets and we've been trying to do it chronologically uh, from the 800s or so, 800 years before Christ, ticking down to 400 or so years before Christ. And I've skipped the chronological order here to get on to Micah. We'll go back and get Hosea. But I wanted to preach on Micah because of its uh, connection, its obvious connection to the Christmas story, Micah chapter 5. Blessed are you, Bethlehem Ephrata, smallest among the clans. Out of you has come a king, a king of the nations, a king from ancient times. And so we are studying through Micah and noticing all of these characteristics of the king who, would be, who was coming, King Jesus, the king that Jesus came to be. And we noticed last week uh, that uh, there is this pattern occurring in, in Micah, or you'll notice it especially today as a repetition of last week, this pattern of the good, the good news following the bad. He exposes the bad news of the selfishness, the self-centeredness, the pride, uh, the idolatry of Judah, and then does so in order to drive them to the grace of God, the grace eventually demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's this pattern of the whole Bible. It exposes the bad news of our sin, but it's always to drive us to Jesus. The bad news of where we are going astray and how people are disappointing us, it drives us to the good news that Jesus will never disappoint us. So with that expectation, I want you to turn your attention to chapter 3, and I'm reading selected verses because of communion today. We don't want to uh, to crowd the time for communion. I'll start with verse 9 of Micah chapter 3. Verse 9 of Micah chapter 3, and then selected verses from chapter 4. <clears throat> Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. But therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold wonderful things in this portion of the gospel. Drive us to the end of ourselves that we might find Jesus and that he might that he might seal to us the love of God in Christ by this supper at the end of the service. In Jesus' name we pray at God's people said together, amen. It is time for true confession. I've once again broken a vow that I try to make every Christmas and that is not to watch a Hallmark movie. But last night I succumbed. It wasn't really my fault, it's the woman thou gavest me. And when I asked why we were watching this movie, she said, we need something thoughtless. We need something predictable. You know how it's going to end. It's going to be happy. Just be quiet. Watch the movie. I got up, went away. I came back. I said, did the girl find the boy? Did it start snowing? Did everything work out right? She said, it's a commercial. It'll happen after that. Now, don't, uh, don't be too hard on Hallmark movies. There's a lot of stress in a typical Hallmark movie, like this one last night. Very stressful, very stressful situation. I mean, this young woman is torn between uh, taking a job that will qualify her to be the heiress of a great financial kingdom and being a rocket in Radio City Music Hall. It's a, it's a, it's a real-life experience. Some of you may be battling that this morning. Rocket heiress. It's tough. Predictable. Simplistic. We came home that night from, or last night, from a Christmas party for Memphis City Seminary. Wonderful party. Students were there celebrating what the Lord was doing in this seminary that God's privileged us to have here at Second. And I met some new friends there, friends who are who were missionaries up until last year, came home from the field, retired professor from the medical college, went over to Afghanistan to set up a family uh, medicine uh, residency program, great success, lots of Afghans learning 
to be physicians, but narrowly escaped, he did, he and his wife, uh, narrowly escaped two weeks before the U.S. left that country and the Taliban took over altogether, shut down the program, did away with the schools, made it illegal for women to be doctors. They were... They were crushed by thinking of the the work that they had done for over a decade. It was all lost. It all seemed uh, for naught. On the way home, Jackie, quoting the psalm, said, How long, O Lord, and why do the wicked prevail? He's asking like the psalmist does, like the Bible does, like the Bible prophets, when will justice be seen in the earth? Jesus Christ has come. God has sent Jesus Christ to be a king for our real world problems. Not just a a king, a a, a simplistic, everything is dreamy, Pollyannish kind of king you might imagine in a Hallmark movie, but a king that is sufficient to give hope in the real pain of this world with the real promise of justice and mercy. Jesus is described as that kind of king in these verses that we read in between chapters three and four. And God calls us, as he did the people of Judah, to turn away from all false representations of any king to turn away from all false representations to the true king, Jesus Christ, who is just and merciful. I want you to look first of all at these false representations, these who fall short of what God wants for us, what he designed uh, initially, uh, originally, to characterize our world, justice and mercy. I want you to look at these false representations as they come in three offices in Israel, three offices that are represented in our world today. The office of judge, the office of pastor, and the office of, we'd say, civil ruler or king here, or heads as, as, as used here. What does God what does God design for? What does God what is God's desire for his people? It is that they would be led by justice and mercy. Most obviously that they would be led by just judges, those who serve the legal system or who we might broaden the application anyone charged with the responsibility of adjudicating right and wrong. Obviously, in the in the civil courts or the the court system, in the legal system, but it could be you in your place of business. It could be you on your campus. It could be, it could be in your responsibility in your homeowners association. Any place where you are responsible for adjudicating, uh, for giving a verdict of right and wrong. What is God's will for His people? His people, his human beings made in the image of God, his desire, his perfect will, simply stated, is even-handedness, equality, or what the Bible calls justice. And God says to us in these minor prophets, and Micah no less, 
that the, the more privilege, the more responsibility, the more influence, the more power, the more authority any of us has, the more responsibility we have for seeking out those who are not being treated equally and advocating that they would be using whatever influence we have to bring about that kind of what the Bible calls justice. Now, here is what God describes in the rest of his word. Here are the qualifications, and because of time, I'm just going to give you some lists of things. Here are the qualifications for a just judge. And I find these in Deuteronomy, primarily in Deuteronomy, has a lot to say about justice and judges and civil authorities. Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 19, 21, and 25. So these chapters, and we'll find five characteristics. Deuteronomy 1, 16, 21, 25. What do we find? Five things. One, it requires someone to be impartial. It requires them to listen to both sides so that the the judgment, the decision given would be uh, even-handed. Number two, it calls on them to be blind to social and ethnic status to rule with equality. Number three, it it calls them to be courageous and to make decisions no matter whether it brings harm to them or unpopularity to them. Number four, to be impervious to bribery or influence. And then number five, in whatever they hand out, it should be whatever punishment they hand out, it must be humane. Now, if those are the qualities that God demands of a just judge or someone who is given that responsibility, you and I are thinking even as we go through those characteristics of where we don't see that happening and we can despair or become cynical. But what I want you to see, first of all, these are the standards God puts in his word and he says, these are the ones I require that I demand and someday will bring about. That should give us hope. The second uh, group of leaders he addresses are, they're called prophets or priests. In our passage, we can expand them into the New Testament and explain that this is, these are pastors. These are shepherds or elders. And this is what God requires of them. Isaiah uh, spoke very directly and very strongly against the the shepherds and the priests and prophets of his day. Isaiah was probably one of Micah's buddies. They were prophesying about the same time. You can see some overlap in their language. They both talk about beating swords into plowshares. There's some, there's some interchange of language. And Isaiah addressed the, the pastors of his day and said, you are lazy, you're gluttonous, you're drunks, Isaiah 56. Ezekiel called on pastors or preachers to be watchmen on the wall, Ezekiel 34. Sit on the wall, look out for the danger, and warn the people inside of the danger, ready them for it. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah railed against the unfaithful shepherds of God's people, 
saying they are false shepherds and they stand condemned, Jeremiah 25. And he says, this is what should characterize true shepherds, true pastors and elders. They should be men of knowledge and understanding, Jeremiah 3.15. Knowledge, yes, of the Bible. How do you find things in the Bible? What does the Bible say? But of wisdom and understanding as well. Understanding the gracious message of the Bible from beginning to end, the pastoral message of it, how to apply it with wisdom and tenderness, Christ-centeredness to the people. They should be men of prayer, Jeremiah 10, verse 21, who, who lift up uh, prayer requests, yes, but who pray for the flock and pray for themselves to be repentant and humble and faithful leaders of God's people. And number three, they should, be, they should provide a safe church culture. A safe church culture, Jeremiah 23, verses three and four. Meaning one that has the absence of strife. Ones who are pursuing short accounts with one another displaying and exemplifying a spirit of reconciliation and, and friendship and pursuit of relationship so that there is unity and peace among the people of God. The third group of leaders that he addresses is in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. He calls them heads here, elsewhere called rulers or kings. These are civil authorities. But we could expand the application to anybody who has leadership responsibility for other people. And the Bible teaches us that civil authorities are responsible for three things. They punish the wrongdoers and they reward the rightdoers. They maintain standards of, of truth and honor and responsibility. 1 Peter 2 verse 17. They collect taxes but for the public good... Romans 13, 7, and they especially serve the weak and the vulnerable. Psalm 58 or uh, Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 32, where those who rule are supposed to lead in such a way that the city would be called one of righteousness and of faithfulness. Or as in Proverbs 12, the, uh, Solomon says, we should, the, the people of God particularly, those who are, in res, who, who are in a place of responsibility, official responsibility, or those who have in, influence and authority, those who have resources, should rejoice their city. Rejoice their city. Their city should rejoice that they are citizens of it and see that they're not selfish and self-centered, but rather they serve in such a way that the city rejoices, experiences joy, the benefits of their living as salt and light. This is, as has been, the characteristic of God's people uh, leading through the centuries, God's people living out their faith is looking at God's patterns for justice and mercy in Scripture, even if they weren't experiencing it in their, in their earthly leaders. They, they knew it from Scripture. They knew it from God's character. So they, were, they tried to emulate it, live it out in their society. And it provided an apologetic of astonishment 
By that I mean that people would look as, have looked at Christians and said, you know, we don't want to believe their message, but we can't deny it, give it what we see them doing. For those who, who don't love them in return, for those who are not worthy of it, quote unquote, before they become worthy of it or before they earn it, we, we see them doing those good works that we can identify as good and therefore we're forced to glorify their Father in heaven. Rodney Stark, a famous church historian, described the distinctive love, the justice and mercy of God's people throughout history and its apologetic or its ability to convince people of the truth of the faith this way. In the midst of the squalor, misery, illness, and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and justice. It all started with Jesus. In contrast, in the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion. Because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief. This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. My friend, my new friend I talked about earlier in the sermon who has, uh, had to leave, had to escape Afghanistan uh, because of the danger there, told me that recently he learned that two of his fellow physicians who were Afghan, who were Muslim, had come to faith in Christ. I said, how did that happen? I mean, you, you were, it was illegal for you to proselytize. You couldn't share with him verbally why, what, what, how to have a personal relationship with Christ. He said they were forced to see it in our lives, meaning all of those who were Christian missionaries. And then in the contrast to what they're experiencing now, they've seen the truth of the gospel and the justice and mercy of the service of Christians in that place. We turn away from those, those false characterizations of what justice is and what mercy is. And mercy is not weakness, that justice is not just grabbing for yourself what you want at power, but it is to reflect the character of God, a stand for the right and a commitment to love. That's the justice and mercy of God. So we turn from those false characterizations to the true the only true king who personifies justice and mercy and gives us the pattern for the way we are to live it in this world. And it's what we find in chapter 4, 1 through 8, or 1 through uh, 13. When, when uh, Micah says, there are, when you come to this Christ, you'll experience four freedoms and two conditions. Four freedoms and two conditions outline this whole chapter. Now, how do I know he's talking about coming to Christ? Because in verse 2, chapter 4, he says, Many nations will come and they'll say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, a mountain that is higher than all of the others. Well, is that Jerusalem? Is that the mountain? Is that Mount Zion? It can't be. It's not the tallest mountain in the world. It was a tall mountain if you had to climb it by foot. And it represented, 
It represented God's kingdom with the, with the jewel of the, of the temple on the top of it. But it was a foreshadowing of God's kingdom that would come through Jesus Christ to earth and be established in the church as a foretaste of that kingdom that is going to come when Jesus returns. And in the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, he clarifies that for us as well. The mountain of God is to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ into the church initially. The church isn't the perfect representation of the kingdom of God. It's a foretaste. The perfect realization of the kingdom of God will be when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom once and for all. But for now, the church is to emulate, is to illustrate what it looks like to live in the beauty and the benefits of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And there are four freedoms that one should experience, therefore, in the church of Christ. Number one, it's a freedom from ignorance. Jesus said in some place, if it were not so, I would have told you. That means Jesus tells us everything we need to know for life and godliness. Jesus teaches us in his word as it's described here in verse two. He teaches us his ways, the principles of God's word, the descriptions of what is reality, the promises, the forecast for the future, the, the, the laws by which we are to live, not that, that don't restrict our freedom, but allow us to flourish and allow life to go well for us. Despite the pain and the aspects of brokenness, life goes better living the way Jesus calls us to live it than it does when you're trying to live it on your own. That's one of the freedoms, freedom from ignorance. The second freedom is the freedom from war. You see, he says in verse 3, like his buddy Jeremiah, like Isaiah would have said, beat their, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. How is that realized in the church right now? It is that in the church we're constantly talking about this weird word reconciliation. We're constantly talking about moving toward one another in relationship keeping short accounts, asking for forgiveness, repenting to one another, receiving uh, people's apologies, extending forgiveness, repairing relationships, no matter what has been done in those relationships. And sometimes if we've grown accustomed to the church, if we've grown up in the church, we take that for granted. And sometimes I have to be awakened by new Christians who come into our church a couple of years ago. A new Christian in our church said, I just got to ask you a question. You, you, you people talk about this word reconciliation all the time. I've never heard that word. I don't know what it means. And when you describe it, I've never experienced it in real life. Well, it wasn't long before he understood what it meant in a practical way because there was strife in relationships. And, and uh, for the first time in his life, there were people who, who said, we're going to work on this until we find reconciliation. Here's a place where we should be exemplifying peace and, and, uh, and repentant relationships. And then a freedom from a want, 
when we take our vows to want to become members, we vow to those members. You are part of our family. We're pledged to you. We have a covenantal commitment to you that where you have want, where you have need, spiritual, emotional, physical, material, we are your family. We're responsible for helping you, taking care of you. The church should demonstrate that. And then freedom from fear. How in the world do we experience freedom from fear when fears are all around us? This creation is trying to kill us. There are all kinds of things in the news that are, that are intimidating. There's always bad news, always something to be afraid of. But what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say, what's wrong with you? Why were you afraid? But he says, as God does throughout Scripture, don't be afraid. Be courageous. I am with you. I'm with you spiritually. Yes, I'm also with you in a practical way by bringing you into this church. You are not alone. What are the two conditions? The two oracles they're called in this chapter, in verses 9 through 13, they're simply this, repentance and faith. Repentance is alluded to. We infer it from verses 8 to 10. Here's what you are, here is what is wrong, and here you are to writhe and groan. Why? You are to accept your responsibility for sin. Yes, you have been sinned against, you have been wronged, you've been traumatized. You have also sinned before God. And that's the hard news. That's offensive news to some people. But it is calling yourself rightly, viewing yourself the way God views you so that you can finally come clean. You can finally be in the position to receive his grace. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is righteous in your sight so that you are justified when you speak, right when you judge. But repentance is not all there is. We we call sin what it is that we may turn away from it to Christ in faith. And we accept him as the one who is the sovereign king over all the world, verses 11 through 13. Many nations are assembled against you, but you will arise. You will protect us. You will lead us. You will lead us into the gain of the Lord, the wealth of the whole earth. It is to turn from our bitterness, our sin, our despair to King Jesus who promises whatever you can't understand now, I promise I will put all things right in that which is to come. Right now, live faithfully before me and trust the battle to me. To do as Hezekiah finally did. He finally listened to Micah. He kept going to his own resources, tried, kept trying to, to trust in others, kept trying to pursue the popularity game to preserve his nation. Finally, he went to his prayer closet and he spread out the matter before the Lord and he said, Lord, fight our battles for us. You say, when in the world is that ever going to happen? It's pie in the sky. What I'm experiencing right now, how can that possibly figure in to God's triumphant reign, his justice and his mercy now. How in the world can I ever trust that? 
Why doesn't, he, why doesn't he deliver me right now? Why doesn't he turn around the history of this world right now? Why doesn't he cure justices and apathy right now? I can't ultimately explain that right now. I can just say that as he is faithful and we experience his faithfulness, in small things every day we can trust because of the sacrifice of his son, that he will make all things right in that future which is to come. Something like this, I was working on a, I've got an old clock at home that never works for very long. It's not even a grandfather clock, it's a grandmother clock. And I, I, was, I was working on it the other day and I was noticed, I was just watching it to see if it, if, uh, if, if it was ever going to keep time. And you know how a clock works, there's, a, there's, a, a, there's a gears in it. And, and, and one on top, swung by the pendulum, it causes a teeth to go back and forth and move this gear. And you can say, okay, those are seconds. I see that the clock is moving. It's moving that second hand gear, little bit by little bit. And if you're a little bit more patient, you can see it eventually turning the minute hand. Very much slower, but it's moving and the other day, I tried to watch for the hour gear to move until my eyes crossed and I got impatient and I walked away. And then I heard it chime. The hour had come after all. Little second by little second, little second by little second, minute by minute by minute until an hour came. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. The hour will come when he will put all things right. And in that day, we'll see. Ah, this is how all of these little experiences, all of these little tragedies, these tragedies, these momentary afflictions, yes, you have brought the hour to pass. And living in that way, that future perspective will change the way you live in the present. I saw this recently in the story of James Montgomery, who is the author of the hymn that we are going to sing in just a moment, Angels from the Realms of Glory. James Montgomery was the son of, of Moravian missionaries in Ireland. And when he was seven years old, his parents were called away to the West Indies, and they put him in a boarding school, and they served there for five years, and then they were killed in that mission service. He barely knew his parents. And that being bereft of parental love, some think that it, it just caused him to lose interest in everything. To the point he dropped out of school, he took a, an, a job as an assistant butcher and then other odd jobs here and there to the point that he, he, he gave up on everything. He was jobless, was homeless, he was a vagrant. The only thing he was interested in was writing. He wrote poems. He wrote stories. And nobody cared about them. Nobody wanted to publish the poetry of a homeless man. Except for this radical Irish newspaper called the Sheffield Register. A, a newspaper that was trying its best to whip up the Irish to throw off the oppressive, uh, the oppression of the British in those days and, and was telling them of all of the, the things that they were 
uh, the, 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 the ways that they were abusing their power and keeping down the Irish. Eventually, they also took on the cause of the abolition of slavery. But all of it was going to be solved if they would take up arms and throw off this oppressive British rule. Well, you can imagine it wasn't a popular paper among the British authorities that eventually they deported the owner. And when they did, it left only the 23-year-old James Montgomery to be editor of the paper. He was hired by the owner and, uh, and he was publishing his stories for a while. He was made editor-in-chief and his tongue, his, his, his pen became fierier and fierier. One day, December 24, 1816, the people were especially unsettled and upset and wanting. The editor of the Sheffield became the Iris, but wanted the, the editor of the Iris to whip them up and engage them and in, inspire them to throw off their political captors, their political oppressors. But... but um, but uh, Montgomery had been reading his Bible again. He wanted to know what in the world, what kind of power took hold of my parents that would, that would drive them to become missionaries in the West Indies and ultimately lose their lives. And he found in the Bible the power of the gospel, the love, justice, and mercy of Jesus Christ. Instead of a revolutionary peace on December 24, 1816, instead he began his peace this way, angels from the realms of glory. No, it wasn't an entirely hallmark poem. In the middle of that poem, for some reason, this stanza has been left out of our hymnody. He writes, sinners wrung with true repentance, doomed for guilt to endless pains, justice now revokes the sentence. Mercy calls you, break the chains. Repentance. It's what James Montgomery did. He turned in repentance to the Savior. And out of that doom that he had been living in, he realized his guilt had been taken away by the just justice and mercy of Christ, of God, kissing in Christ in producing his atonement. He embraced the mercy of Jesus Christ and became all the more a warrior against slavery, yes, but in a very different way. Not by cynical and political writing, but instead by writing hymns for the church that brought joy and engagement to people's worship rather than the, the dirges and the chants that they had become accustomed to, but life and joy and fervor that would turn them out to their world to take that good news of the gospel that brings with it also justice and mercy now. James Montgomery with his pen touched many more thousands of people than even his parents did as missionaries. 
And such is the message for us. Angels for the realms of glory have announced to us salvation has come. And it is our privilege now in experience of that justice and mercy of God in Jesus Christ to take it no matter what the cost to those around us, into this city, into this world. And it begins today by coming for fueling and for encouragement to this table.